Well, good morning to you all again. It's a blessing to be here together and have the opportunity to interact, be a part of the conversation again. I don't know what your reflections were overnight, but as I got up this morning and uh, considered this subject again, uh, I still think, taking too big of a bite here. Uh, do remind you of a few things that we've been trying to emphasize. Don't get the idea that when we speak about postmodernism, we automatically are in reactive mode and we are automatically discounting everything that has come out of this movement. That's not the case. Um, I've tried to teach myself over the years that whenever you see a movement that is reactionary to another movement, There's some correction in place, and you ought to look, what's being corrected here? And typically, there are elements of it that are overreacting and and headed off in in wrong directions. And we recognize that when we're coming to the subject of postmodernism. It's a broad, broad, broad range of people who may fall under that category of of postmodernists. Uh, and some of them really fine people, all of them good people, I guess, in many ways. Uh, but perhaps some, perhaps we need some guidance with it too. I would want to be careful about not being a deconstructionist myself. For example, if I pick and choose my examples, right? <coughs> Which we all do. You can't really avoid doing that, you know. <laughs> Uh, but you pick and choose. If we go to the polar ends and look at the worst examples, well, that cast it in a certain light. And I'm just aware of that even as we talk uh, here this morning. I want you to know uh, that, that uh, I do understand that. Third, I would just uh, point out to you that it feels to me like I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, I, I mean, I realize that these are maybe not huge issues with us. But let me tell you, on the other side of the coin, culture and movements affect us. They just do. As somebody has so aptly said, culture is almost like a huge ocean that, that you're in the thing bobbing around in it. And there's probably movement somewhere, and you're carried along with it, and you really don't have points of reference along the way, and you sort of move with it, whether you like it or whether you don't. And we're just really silly to act as if that's not the case. I mean, we do feel uh, the effects of these things. And it's not all negative, as we've been saying here. I have two questions uh, for you this morning. The first one is rather objective. How many of you have heard of the madrasa, the Pakistani madrasa? Okay, see a couple of hands around here. Very likely, even as I speak, uh, the madrasa, the religious schools in Pakistan, are involved or are engaged with students and talking to students and indoctrinating them, and instructing them. And what is the purpose? Well, again, if I go to a polar end, (laughs) the one polar end 
the net uh, result that the madrasa professor or teacher wants. He wants to draw from his students radicalized Muslims who will, in fact, be willing to strap munitions on themselves, walk into a restaurant somewhere and blow themselves up in a lot of people. This is a school. A school. If you want to read a very, very interesting article, uh, it's in, uh, I believe, in the, the uh, National Geographic this past summer. There was a, a very, a very informative, informative uh, article on the madrasa. And as I read it, I couldn't help but reflect on, on religious schools in America. <clears throat> I just point out to you that schools, schools all around the world have adopted all kinds of methods and aims and goals. And uh, the madrasa is being very effective in the Pakistani or in the, the Muslim world in bringing together a group of people who are dedicated to the Muslim religion. What I don't have time to look at, but in that article, it tells you something about their methods, how they actually go about recruiting and instructing. You would find it fascinating. Point you that direction if you care to look at an article on it. Second question I have for you, and I don't want you to raise your hand, because I'm not quite sure how this would all turn out. But I'm wondering how many of us have ever spanked a school child, somebody in our classroom, don't raise your hand. <clears throat> I see Enos smiling here. <laughs> My hand is sore. <laughs> well, I was told, Brother Enos, that you have taught school for 45 years. Is that right? Praise the Lord. I've been arguing for long-term teachers for a long time. And we got a guy who was outlasting most of us a long time. Um, I'll just point that out for a reason. If you've been in schools for, I would say, 20-plus years, you probably would have seen a shift in just this issue alone. Okay, And I don't see it all, as all negative by any means. Uh, but the fact of the matter is almost for sure, if I were to actually take a vote here, I, you would see some of us older teachers pop our hands up. And I'd be glad to tell you I probably could count the number of spankings I've given, probably on two hands, I, I, I think. But almost all of them in my first 10 years of teaching. I, I didn't sit down and just actually look. But I haven't given a spanking to a youngster in school in a long time. Maybe it's time to go with it. <laughs> now, I just raised a question to point out to you that when we're talking about classroom dynamics and just to see some of the shift, some of the movement, there are reasons for this. Lots of reasons, but among them are just simply the cultural shift that we're almost afraid to now, even if it did seem like it was appropriate and ought to happen uh, the fact of the matter is the cultural climate doesn't quite lend its, uh, its uh, weight, your direction very much. And, and so much, much slower. Just that alone has had an effect on how we approach this. And there are some other things too. In fact, 
speaking of how things shift, perhaps there was too much emphasis on the idea that corporal punishment would straighten it all up. Uh, but then it shifts in another direction. I, one of one of my uh, one of my uh, uh, what should I say chagrined opinions of the of the counseling movement is is it has done a lot of good. But one of the things that irritates me is you end up needing to talk everybody into everything. You have to persuade them. Uh, there is no such thing as just simply saying, "Well, do this or do that." You know, everybody has to be persuaded. This is what you do. Uh, maybe that's the opposite end. Okay, so it's kind of like things swing back and forth between how you do actually do classroom or how you train a generation of people. Well, with those few introductory remarks, I'd like to engage with the question here a little bit for a little while this morning. And uh, I did change that wording just a little bit on the title uh, just so that you, you, I didn't have to stick just with classroom management here in the discussion. Uh, classroom dynamics for the 21st century. And in some ways, it feels to me as though maybe a younger teacher should be, should be teaching this. I just talked with Patrick a few minutes ago, and uh, he, was, he was just sharing quickly a few of his experiences in the colleges he's been to and some of the courses he's taken in the past, I don't know what, five years or so. Uh, and and uh, very fascinating, just in the five minutes he talked to me about the emphases he felt. Uh, so if you want to sort of get the real picture of what's happening currently, maybe talk to Patrick. Or maybe I should just sit down and let him talk. And he could give you a little bit on this. But here we go. We'll take a look. Four questions of epistemology. Now, I didn't really wrap up last evening exactly the way I wanted to, but uh, one of the big questions in my mind, or maybe where one of the bigger struggles is, I think, in the movement, the cultural movement that postmodernism has, has uh, kind of initiated or inaugurated here, is the change in epistemology. Now, remember last evening, I wanted to say that epistemology really is a question of authority. Who says so? Okay, I've been saying for a long time that for our churches, the three great questions are, first one is a definition. What is a church? Okay, so that's, that's on a, a definitive term. The second one is who are its members? And the third one is the worst one of all. Who says so? Who in the world decides? Where... How are you going to agree that that really is, that's the right definition? This is the member. How do you make those decisions? Who says so? <laughs> well, it's a good question. Uh, the four questions of epistemology, the first one is, what is knowledge? Now we're talking back to education now. So I'm in a general way saying, the epistemological question is a authority question. And you can get at it with four questions. What is knowledge? Or you could, I borrowed this from somebody else, you could say, insert for knowledge, what is truth? <laughs> what is really true? And that, that is a question that has been raised quite a bit in our day. Well, it was raised by Pilate. Yeah, and we're still struggling with it. What is truth? 
Secondly, in terms of methodology, and now we're talking classroom again, how is, again, if we insert truth, how is truth or knowledge acquired? How do we actually gather it up? Third, what do people know? And fourth, I think the most important question of all, how do we know that we know? Okay, Uh, what is the authority that stands behind our knowledge? And uh, it's a very, very big question. Not answering all these questions now. You can uh, wrestle with them a bit in your your, uh, groups. But when we're in the classroom teaching, these are very, very important questions in my opinion. And I want to just make three points about what I think is a crisis or the crisis in epistemology. Or if you want to put the word in their authority, you could, uh, at least loosely. And the first one doesn't, uh, I don't want to camp on this one very long, but I do want to talk about it just briefly. Last evening, I introduced to you that there's two ways of looking at authority. Epistemology really does deal with truth or knowledge. And my first point here doesn't deal with that issue. It deals more with the chain of command authority. And attitudes have changed there. Uh, I just lamented there a few minutes ago that uh, no longer can you just say so. You have to talk people into Well, there has been some loss here. Now, again, hear me trying to stay away from this polarization in making this the problem. But it is a problem. (laughs) Uh, The problem simply being that uh, in our day, chain of command authority, and I'm talking now about dad, mom, parents, parental authority, uh, the authority of the teacher in the classroom, uh, and so on. These kinds of things certainly have changed. Okay? Uh, I'll talk about it a little bit later on here, but I don't see them as all good changes. Uh, the, the erosion here has certainly, has certainly created at least some inefficiencies, I think, and, and uh, perhaps even created a, a situation where it's, it's a difficult to move forward in classrooms or in homes or in communities or in churches uh, in ways that are really constructive. Seems to me that's a, a subject for another place, but I just pointed out to you. There certainly have been changes here. Secondly, as I mentioned last evening, there has been a changing attitude toward the master-disciple model of learning. And as you'll hear me say in just a few minutes here, that's not all bad, but I don't like the idea of seeing us getting entirely away from that. Why? Well, in terms of epistemology or authority, there used to be more authority offered to the teacher, so to speak. Now, I'm not talking about chain of command. I'm talking about a person who is conveying or communicating truth, understandings, information that they have learned and imbibed and experienced uh, and tested and tried, and now they, they are in the process of teaching that to somebody else. Uh, that, that model is not very acceptable 
but I, there is a changing attitude there. I want to come to that point here after bit two. <clears throat> and thirdly, as I mentioned last evening, there is a changing attitude toward the authority of the text. Now, you could begin with the Bible if you cared to. Uh, but anymore, there is, there is less and less uh, credence, I think, uh, given to, okay, this text is to any given text because people see that as written from a bias standpoint, from a position of, a cultural position, a uh, you know, ethnic position or a racial position. You'll, you'll hear a lot of this in the language. Uh, and so not so much authority of the text anymore. Now what I've done with this to try to just Okay, say, yeah, we can talk about all of these things in a lot of detail, but what actually should be happening in the classroom? And I have 11 points to give to you, I believe. Uh, They are not all inclusive. It's kind of like as they came to me. So it's not like I have them really well organized here, but I'll share them with you. Classroom life that resists postmodern philosophy, and I am talking about the negative aspects, as I see them, at least, of, uh, of what's come upon us by postmodernism. First of all, insist that meta-narrative is valid and thus judges personal narrative, not the other way around. Again, I borrow the terminology from postmodern lingo. You could just as well put in there, insist that the big story is valid insists that the Bible is valid and thus judges my life, not the other way around. Okay? Uh, And you may say, well, that's no problem in our communities. Well, I understand. But I am telling you that uh, uh, at least in some of its forms, postmodernism is not going to accept metanarrative. It's not going to accept the big story as being valid. And you understand why. They're saying that nobody can objectively and without bias report the story. Nobody can, nobody can do that. So if I write the story for the Mennonites, let's say, over the past hundred years, well, I, I, I'm looking at it through a th- certain set of glasses, so it's not like I really have a valid meta-narrative okay, or big story. Um, and so, so it's discounted and not all that important. The more important issue in postmodernism is that I bring what I bring to it. So I have a fragmented piece of it. And Bill, he brings a fragmented piece. And Sam, he brings a fragmented piece. And so all these, this fragmentation around. But I think that we should insist that the meta narrative is valid. And by the way, when push comes to shove on this, you're back to the issue of divine revelation. Really, particularly in respect to the meta narrative of the Bible. The question is can, do we believe in a God who could actually communicate truly to us? Uh, and, and are we willing to accept it in that, ver- in that way uh, rather than, than yield to higher criticism and deconstructionalism? 
of the, of the scriptures and so on. Now, there's more to say about that tomorrow morning. But you can see that tucked away there in number one for the Christian. Number two, select and develop text-based curriculum that agrees with valid meta-narrative. Now, I know that you've actually, here I am, using new terms to say an old thing. Okay, and what is it? I'm just simply saying, well, look, it doesn't make sense uh, if what you're going to do is have a school that is a Christian school with a whole pile of curriculum that doesn't really add up to the big story. And I do underscore text-based. Just talking to my son last evening. Uh, he's teaching for his second year back in Anchor Christian School in Chambersburg. And yeah, I said, Dad, you know what? Uh, I, I, I've taught now just for two years, but I figured out that the fact of the matter is if you don't have a text to use to kind of keep you centered or keep you headed in a direction, if, after a while you're, you're not quite sure where you're going. I said, well, the way I use a text you know, he's younger than I, and he's a little more modern. You know, he's postmodern, right? So he's, uh, he, he's using more of the methods that I'll be talking about here in a bit. Uh, groups and this and that and the other thing, they're good. But he said, you know, I need the text. <laughs> I need the text to sort of guide me through where I'm headed. And so I still want to argue that I think you would be mistaken if what we decided to do was just let everything be fragmented, so we bring in fragmentary pieces. His story, her story, that story, chuck them all together without some kind of cohesiveness. And uh, my argument here is that the, the text-based idea, uh, I think, is one of the better ideas that has been around for a long time to keep us on track and give us some direction there. I'm, I'm just absolutely delighted that uh, while I'm not so involved, the resource group here and uh, Faith Builders in general has, has uh, tried to promote some text writing. There have been some, some of you doing that. Uh, let's have more of it, really. Third, resist the methodology of deconstruction. I said enough about that last evening. No reason to go into it in more detail today, but I think it really does need to be resisted. Number four, maybe you won't like this win, but I'm going to put it in anyway. Indoctrinate, indoctrinate to word conviction. <laughs> Again, in talking with several of you, I'm reminded that Jesus actually, in his teaching, used a variety of things. And quite frankly, that was, that's where I am. I don't have a problem with some of these newer methods if, that have come along, but I would not say that that means discard old, tried, and true, true methods that have worked for years. Jesus did sit down one time on a mountain, and he called his disciples to him, and from what I can tell, he gave them a sermon. He indoctrinated them. He taught them in the master-disciple relationship. So while perhaps there is space to open up for or to understand some of the, the newer uh, methods of teaching, uh, let's not forget there is a time to indoctrinate toward conviction. <clears throat> and I'll think we should drop that out of our schools. I really don't. 
that infers that we should select and develop master teachers. I'm glad you're here. Um, That shows some interest in what we're talking about here. Again, those of us who are a little bit older and have been in education for a while, we remember, uh, Enos remembers better than I do, back there in the early 70s and in the late 70s and the early 80s where, where we were struggling like everything just to find teachers' bodies for classrooms. Right, Brother Enos? <laughs> just struggling for all we could. I, and I... I want, to, I want to really give an optimistic spin on that. I'm telling you what, you, we are way ahead today uh, from where we were at in 1980 in terms of actually putting into our classrooms teachers uh, who, who have more skills under their belt and I think a, a, a better understanding, I know you do, than what I did when I stepped into the classroom in 1978. Uh, I think back on those days, they, they were fun believe it or not. They were hard and they were tough, but I was swimming for my life. <laughs> so I think we're on the right track. Select and develop master teachers. Inspire and make disciples. I'm arguing here again for the master-disciple relationship. Now, I want to quickly balance that. Uh-oh, there is something that did not work with my points here. I don't know what happened to number seven. Oh, yes, I do. Um, okay, I'm going to give it to you now, and then you'll see it show up here later on. I forgot to, to organize it in the, uh, uh, in the order here. It is this. Encourage interactive learning styles. Now, here's where I want to balance off this point that I just got done making that I'm arguing for the old master-disciple relationship and saying it was a good way to instruct a rising generation and should not be discarded. On the other hand, we should not ignore what some of the research has, has produced and shown us and some of the, the teaching methods that have come about. And we could even look at the example of Jesus. He did sometimes just sit down with two or three of them or along the way, raise a question. And really not even answer it. Just let them talk. Or as they talked a little bit, then he would ask them a question or so. Now I will say that in most cases, he did not just let questions dangling without giving some direction to them. And I am a little bit chagrined by the, the postmodern idea or, or their, their love, their seeming intoxication with just raising dozens of questions without answering anything and thinking you got somewhere because you asked enough questions that nobody could answer. Uh, I will admit that sort of irritates me. <laughs> but on the other hand, the methodology of actually breaking out into small groups or raising a question and letting students wrestle with that and, and letting them bang around at it and, and, and see what kind of solutions they come up with and answers and moving in some direction. That's good. That really is good. You are after, it would seem to me as though we are after a, a mature student who not only has been told some things that are true, but knows how to discover what's true. Knows how to move towards what's true. 
And he doesn't have to have the master right by his side in order to say, is that true? Is it not true? But he really does have the skills to interact with the information he's got and with people and articulate his arguments and his questions and his understanding and move some. Group interaction would be good. I'm all for that. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you, anybody who has been in my classroom and has sat under me as a student knows that I don't do real well with this. I'm lecture-oriented. I know that. But I'm trying hard here to say, look, let's not be silly. There are good ways in which you you can change and alter a classroom dynamic in such a way that people really do learn. Who would not learn very well otherwise? And I want to encourage that. And I want you to know that I I support it. I support that idea. I would uh, really encourage the groups when you gather to to discuss that a bit. What, What are ways that we can really encourage interactive learning? Now, this afternoon, I will say a little bit more about the interactive learning in terms of the information age and, and uh, the electronic media and things like that. Uh, but for now, just think of it in the classroom, in the interaction that really does produce a learning environment. Number seven here seems to be a little bit out of place. Oh, now it comes up. <laughs> I mean, number eight. Promote the authority of dad and mom and the capacity to obey. Okay, it's a little out of place here because remember, I I know I'm swinging back and forth a bit between epistemology and chain of command ideas here. I I am a little bugged here by how far we have gotten astray. And I intentionally use the word here, obey. Okay, because I I find that we're almost afraid to even use it. (laughs) It's almost like as if it's it's a no-no. In, in the world we, we live in today. And I disagree. Uh, I really think it is a mistaken position to, to uh, assume that the way forward, even in truth, is always that you talk everybody into everything. I disagree. Uh, the fact of the matter is, when you watch the, the movement and growth of a healthy child, let experience instruct us here of a healthy child who grows up and becomes a productive, thinking person, not hemmed in by, by again, I know there are extremes where there's totalitarian demands that uh, certain things happen. Different. But remember, I've already warned you, don't judge issues on the basis of the exception. Rather, by the rule. The rule throughout the generations of human history, and you can, I I don't claim to be the person who knows the most about this, but what I've observed, whether you go to China and Confucianism and all of that, you'll find that solid societies over the years have always had some level of this in place, where in fact, people did learn what it meant to listen to an instruction and follow it. Now, of course, I know the thing that reinforces this is if, in fact, when people do that, they found out it was a good idea in the long run. Uh, and so, yes, I know there have been authorities, whoever they are, who have led people in wrong directions. But I am concerned about our communities on, in this particular area. Don't want to make a big point of it. Just point it out to you. Number nine, don't let 
information undermine experience. I don't quite know how else to say this. Now, again, this afternoon we talk a little bit about the information age. And I've already alluded to the fact that there's information available to your students and to your sons and your daughters and to your grandchildren. An unbelievable amount of information is available to them, but don't let it undermine experience. The fact of the matter is, it still is true that somebody who has lived, who is a grandpa, they have valuable information on a wide range of subjects for a young generation. And it may not have come off the internet. (laughs) In fact, it likely did not. (laughs) But they did learn something in 70 years. And I think it is very unwise to somehow disconnect ourselves from that, that truth that knowledge, that information that was gained by those grandpas and great-grandpas over the years. In fact, if you want a dream of mine, I, have, I still don't quite figure out why we don't have more grandpas in the classroom. No offense to those of you who got into the classroom when you were 18 years old. Really, no offense. But you know, it does not make a whole lot of sense <laughs> to lay out all of the money that we lay out to educate people in our communities and to to have all of the hours spent when we bring all of these, we truck all of these youngsters in from all over the place to this one, to do all of that and not bother to take advantage of the experience that is in the community. And so I don't know how I can encourage this because uh, part of me says, hats off to those of you who are 18, went into the classroom and you taught school and did a good job. I, I certainly laud that. But I'm starting to see the value of pulling in experience. In fact, I've started to talk to even some businessmen who seem to be pretty bright and say to them, you know what you ought to do? What you really ought to do since you're doing so well. <laughs> And stuffing so much in your back pocket, you know, by the time you're 50, you could retire. If you would take the time right now to get at and study, take a few courses uh, in, in uh, mathematics or a few courses in engineering or whatever is your interest. And maybe what you can do about the time you retire from your business, you can go into your classroom and you can even do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I'm just saying, I'm starting to argue for, let's get some experience in there. And I'm just wanting to say, in this case, don't let information, the information age, undermine what experience can do for the next generation. Tenth, do teach respect and honor in a plural society while refusing to redefine sin. I agree very much for example, that it is unwise to castigate the homosexual community and, and uh, to view them as less than people. We are called to love them. And by the way, I think Christianity has done the very best, even philosophically, in terms of teaching that you love people no matter what. 
Now, I know the community hasn't done always so well with that. I think we have space to go here. Respect and honor even within our own circles. Okay, and by that I mean, I know even in this room, there are differences of application and ways of doing things and all of that. Well, it's one thing to have a particular lifestyle. It's another thing to make sure that you have you have explained why everybody else is dead wrong and there are a couple of degrees under you because they are, are dead wrong. Okay, that's, that's one thing. And I'm wanting to correct that. On the other hand, then, what has happened in postmodernism is by the time the respect and honor and pluralism and all of that is, is over and done, nobody is able to say, but that is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. That is not acceptable behavior. And I'm amazed at how much this has actually spread through our ranks in some ways uh, where, where there's almost a refusal to say, but that is sin. That is not right before the Lord and before a fellow man. Now, I don't want the emphasis to be there. I want the emphasis to be where? Let's do respect. Let's do teach respect and honor. But let's at the same time refuse to redefine what God has said. Really is sin and is out of his domain. And the last one is just simply, don't ever give up. Okay? I've been in the classroom 30 years, and some of you have been in there longer and some of you less. I do know that when you start struggling with these things right in the knit and grit of things, I know a lot of you could get up and tell the stories. All right, you got into this, or you got into that, or you got into the other thing, and it's, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, but it's Monday morning, not Saturday morning, where we have a lot of nice teachers together and somebody talking to you. And you're right there trying to make it work, whether it's an inner city school or wherever it is. And I know when, it's, when you're trying to work this out, it can feel like, boy, are we getting anywhere? Well, just remember that as a group of people, as teachers in our communities, as we teach, as we study, as we indoctrinate, as we pull groups together to discuss, as we teach a student how to think for themselves, how to make decisions, how to interact with truth and the information age and all of that, as we do that, we are handing them a priceless gift if we teach them well. And God bless you as you do that. Thank you very much. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders Educational Programs. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.